uh, to begin, and maybe it's uh, playing off of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that I read a little bit ago, um, but to begin, God provides us the standard for justice in his law and word. God provides it. It's his standard. It reflects his character. It shows us the way he is. Therefore, to part ways with with justice is to be willing to compromise your thoughts of God. It is to be dismissive of certain characteristics of the Lord. And I'll guarantee you, Christians and non, there are some things that we don't like about the Lord. There are some characteristics, some of his laws that we just assume didn't exist. Of course, that's wrong of us, but it's true of us. Now, we cannot be confused about this thing. Justice is based on God's law, and his law represents his character. Furthermore, law and justice are never separated from grace and forgiveness. They walk together. This is one God. Even according to Scripture, the most grace-filled act of God was costly. To show you and me grace and to forgive us, God gave his son as a penal sacrifice. Penal means to punish under a legal system. Hence, law and justice. God the Father punished the innocent Lord Jesus for justice to be met because his law was broken. I won't, I won't say more than that. I, I just want to put that out there because sometimes I think we don't like the idea of unbending law and justice in the land. Sometimes I think Christians get the idea that somehow forgiveness and grace and love should be applied to the civil magistrate and the one who's supposed to carry the sword. And that's, that's not the case. Christianity has been mistaught, I think, and become misguided because teachers have kind of pitted law and justice against grace and forgiveness, as if law and justice were old and grace and forgiveness had replaced them. It's led people to think that the sword-bearing justice system is also old and should be replaced by a more civil, a more educated rehabilitation model of justice. So, verse 15, it upholds law and justice. You shall do no injustice in court, it says. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
What is justice? It's, it's for things to be made right. Things to be made right. A debt gets paid. A criminal gets punished. And it's figured according to God's standard of righteousness, of making it right. Righteousness. It's according to his stated law. The goal of justice is that things get put right. And this is supported by the use of the word righteousness right there at the end of verse 15. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. I never thought of it that way before, that justice and righteousness were basically Hebrew synonyms. Rushduni, R.J. Rushduni explains righteousness is the same word as justice. Thus, it is the desire for righteousness or justice, which our Lord speaks of in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What were they really hungering and thirsting for? Justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. They want justice. Rush Dooney says, therefore, justice must be the desire of God's covenant people. And to despise God's law is to despise righteousness or justice. Now, there are many laws of nations that are not just. They are unlawful laws. They go against the grain of God. They, they should be erased. And someday they will be. And for you and me, some bad laws, they may seem unimportant. Ah, doesn't really affect me. That's not the point. Just because a bad law doesn't affect you. It still undermines justice and abuses at least some of the citizens because it is bad law, because it is not of God. Leaving that for now, what about justice? When someone has been wronged according to God's standards, if theft or rape or murder or adultery or some other clear and criminal act has been committed against a person, what should he expect from the courts? Well, first he should expect to be heard along with the evidence of the crime. And, and then second, he should expect to be satisfied by a judgment made against his foe. And that judgment should fit the crime. Of course, I believe that Scripture must be our guide as we determine those suitable punishments. It's not up to us to decide a murderer gets 20 years or life in prison if God says the murderer should lose his life. 
as if we got some more gracious punishment than God. No, the uh, person who brings his case to the court should, should expect to be satisfied by a judgment against his foe and the judgment should fit the crime. Now, what does the second sentence mean there? You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. It means when people come before the judge, it should not matter the, the status you hold in society. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or popular or influential. Who cares, according to the court? Justice must be applied as if blind to those things. That's the reason statues of Lady Justice has her blindfolded. No favorites. No favoritism. One commentator, um, a Jewish commentator I read, said that both parties were to be dressed the same when in court. They were to be dressed the same. They were to be seated the same. And that was just to encourage fairness and discourage favoritism. Was this one rich? Was this one poor? You didn't know. They looked the same. And it stands to reason we can do that. We can treat people, one person is more important than another person or as less important. It can happen in the church. It's the reason the Apostle James warned, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Yeah. The church is a place where you'd hope to be accepted like everyone else is accepted. When I think about the church and the people in the church, I don't really do one of those. Um, she's the poor one. Don't worry about her. Oh, he's... He's so wonderful. Who thinks like that? If this is a temptation, though, for church people, how much more in the courts of worldly people? You can imagine some young guy bringing his case before the judge in his cleanest, wrinkle-free T-shirt and worn blue jeans and New Balance sneakers while on the other side of the aisle there sits that executive in his three-piece suit, wingtip shoes, smart tie. You begin to prejudge, don't you? Just looking at them. Maybe in support of the poor person. Or maybe in support of the wealthy one. Depends on what you think. And what your political bias is. None of that should matter. That's the thing. None of it. Justice should be blind. 
Yet lawyers understand it's important that their accused cleans himself up, right? Dresses appropriately, covers tattoos, takes out earrings and nose rings and all that kind of stuff. And goes into into court looking like a clean-cut young man. Lawyers get that because it's the impression it gives the jurors. He doesn't want to put bad impressions in the minds of jurors that they start prejudging the person. Is that right? No. But that's why they do those things. My, my first take, and I'm not sure I'm right about this, it's just my knee-jerk reaction to the, the idea of a public defender. It seems like it serves the noble cause, right? A public defender. He's the lawyer that gets paid for by the, the state or, 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 or the, the federal government or, or, or whoever, whatever the court system is. He gets paid for so that he can represent a person who's in trouble that doesn't have the money to pay for a lawyer, right? So he's the public defender. To me, it appears like it's making an effort to make the equal, to make equal the poor person alongside the rich in court. Because the rich person, or richer person, probably has a lawyer and can afford that, or feels they can afford it once the trial is won, maybe. I do think it's important that we realize the difference between private sympathy and public sympathy toward those who are you know, at a disadvantage. Sympathy for, for the poor should not play a part in the courts, other than maybe this public defender idea for equality look, you know. You and I and the church, okay, we may want to help the downtrodden. We may want to, to give to those in need, but those sympathies cannot be turned into leverage to establish unfair law and or to affect justice. There's no place for that. God does not tolerate sin and crime by any person, rich or poor, ugly or beautiful. J.H. Hirsch writes, even sympathy and compassion must be silenced in the presence of justice. Here's a sample of God's justice coming from his court. Revelation 6, 15 through 17 says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's justice is meted out equally. No favoritism is found in God. God is just. 
there is a, uh, I think a Puritan commentator, Andrew Bonar, he says this about the law and courts. There must be in us no affection of kindness to the poor, he says, even as there must be no fawning flattery of the great. Especially in matters of judgment, the judge must be impartial. The eye of God is on him, and as he is a just God and without iniquity, he delights to see his own attributes shadowed forth in the strict integrity of an earthly judge. I find, and maybe it's just too cynical, but I find that when you hear of injustices occurring, too often I assume nothing's going to happen to that person in the courts. The Talmud says the judge should feel as though a sword were suspended above his head throughout the time he sits in judgment. You can begin to see why it doesn't sit well with the wise and godly when envious politicians promise they promise to construct a government that will soak the rich and give to the poor. That's not fair. What the heck? It's not justice. Neither do the godly like to hear that the innocent will not get their day in court or that they will suffer harm with no one to plead their case. Travesty. Good citizens yearn for justice, not politics or political gamesmanship. So what did the courts look like for the early Hebrews, right? When this law is being spoken in Leviticus. What did the courts look like? God gave them the law. And at first it was Moses at the tent of meeting, deciding cases. A lot of cases, a lot of complaints. Then his father-in-law came along, Jethro, and advised Moses, this is too much for you. You need to pick some men to help you judge these cases. And so they picked wise men, 70 of them, elders, They were selected to help Moses with the easier disputes and the harder ones would work their way to him where he would be like a one-man supreme court depending on God. Gordon Wenham describes things later on in ancient Israel even after they entered into the promised land before the monarchy. He tells of how after they settled, The village elders were the judges. And since there was no official police force, it was up to the injured party and his family to bring bring the culprit before the, the court and to prove his guilt. 
We don't hardly think in those terms. Wenham writes, In the intimate atmosphere of a local trial, it would be particularly easy for neighbors to let their feuds and personal animosities distort the proceedings. I am the Lord at the end of verse 15, or at the end of verse 16. I am the Lord reminds all the participants that God is the ultimate judge. Let their decisions reflect what he would do. That was Wenham still. Now verse 16 is a healthy prescription of how you should think when you're talking about avoiding injustice, okay? Verse 16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. These kind of activities, they they corrupt justice. They thwart the justice system. Someone who who slanders is a person with with malice in his heart, really. He he wants to hurt the accused or discredit the accuser. The slanderer is someone who will paint a picture to influence people's thoughts in order to gain a judgment, in order to get people to go along with him on the idea. For the slanderer, it's not about justice. It's always about getting the outcome he desires. A person who goes around as a slanderer among your people, as it says there in the text, is a slanderer by habit, I think. He slanders in the workplace. He slanders at church. He slanders in social gatherings. It is his way. He's not right on the inside discontent, discontent, I think. But an effective slanderer has an amazing, amazing ability to influence people. He makes sense. Yes, tell me more. Lydia, you do your valley girl voice sometimes, sometimes I do that voice. So when the slanders, when he slanders and accumulates supporters, okay, people, other people listening to him, and then they begin to talk, it's hard, it's hard to know who the initial slanderer was or is. You know what I mean? He's got allies. He's hidden in the crowd now because everybody's into it. The crowd of many voices. It's like what Moses writes in Exodus 23.3, kind of the same basic topic as today's text. He says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. It's easy to fall in with the many, especially when the many are talking so much and building each other up. Now, I think, 
I think in time, you can spot the slanderer, though it takes a while. It helps to spot the slanderer, the, the real slanderer. It helps if the players remain the same in the church, right? Or in the business, or in the community, or even within a family. If the players remain the same, because sooner or later, you, you figure it out, and you identify the root, and you see the one who's at it, at the root of it. You tell by their stripes, finally. That's the man. It doesn't make the others innocent, the ones who listened, the ones that chimed in and that grew into something, but it's that person that you don't want. God says, don't be that person. Go about slandering. He will not tolerate such a one. He won't. The slanderer is unjust. He ruins justice and breaks down social relationships and eventually hurts society. Finally, be careful to honor the court system by your testimony. Give your testimony if you've got one to give. If you know of some evidence that might acquit the innocent, okay, speak up. Or or if you have evidence that you know is going to condemn the guilty, then testify to the truth of what you know. We just want justice. And I'm not, this is not saying, oh, hey, you got to tell everybody what you know about everyone. That's not this at all. This is the court system we're talking about. This is the warning about not uh, uh, causing someone's blood to be lost. We want justice. The law says you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Okay? And, and life here means blood. Okay? Same word. The blood of your neighbor. It's the same Hebrew word. The accused is on trial. Therefore, for a capital crime, he is either innocent or guilty. And if you have evidence uh, of, for either verdict, you must participate. No backing away saying, well, it's really not my business. I, should, I don't want to get involved. That's not possible. You are not at liberty to remain silent. We need justice. But if you refuse, there will be blood on your hands if the innocent is found guilty or the guilty is found innocent. You see, justice is served when the guilty are found guilty and the innocent are found innocent. Lastly, a little bit of a turn here. Not all laws are lawful. I want to return to that. It's improper for lawmakers to establish partiality by their laws, in their laws. That is baked in favoritism. Baked in. It creates partiality in the air we breathe. If you have made laws partial to the poor or deferring to the great. It's it's rigging the game and the legal system itself is set up for injustice then. No lawmakers, which we'll be voting on Tuesday, right? Lawmakers have no right to create law that undermines God's concerns. 
In other words, they should not put law into the books and then enforce it upon the masses. We currently have a law and taxation system that shows partiality by a graduated income tax. It's the graduated part that I'm talking about. It's not everyone pays 10%. No, if you reach a higher level of income, you pay a greater percentage in taxes on your money. Hmm, how is that fair? How is that fair? It has stained, it has stained the fabric of the cloth. Our tax system has evolved in time to become more Marxist than Christian. The so-called progressives, and I'm not talking about today's progressives, that's obvious, but the so-called progressives from the late 19th and early 20th century I'm talking about. Aggravated, they aggravated for taxing the rich in order to bring them down while lifting up the poor. Who do they think they are? And so we've had this graduated income tax since 1913, okay, before any one of us was born. Favoritism at its root. Wow. The rich can afford it. Who cares? Poor guys, they need they need they need the help. What? It is politics based on false guilt and misplaced pity. And it should play no part in law and justice. And we're talking about law here. God forbids that we are partial to the poor in court. But the foolish but we foolishly go and design a system then by which the law itself establishes partiality. Oh, that's the end around. The estate tax, another lovely unfair practice, the estate tax was established in 1916. This is the tax that Congress made into law to take money away from a person who paid taxes all his life, and at death he hopes to to leave his wealth as an inheritance, but if it's beyond a certain dollar amount, okay, if you only have, like, say, a million or two million dollars to leave, which to us seems an incredible amount of money, you don't have to worry about this tax. You can do that, but if you're to go beyond that, now the state wants that money. They want that some of that money because it's their right, right? Because you're wealthy. It's their right to take from you. You, you. you owe it because of your wealthiness. See, it's baked in to the laws. It goes both ways. I'm not just here to cry for the rich or wealthy or anything like that. In some laws, big business and the rich influenced lawmakers by their lobbyists. Or they gave private 
and corporate campaign contributions in order to, say, secure a vote. I find it quite incredible, actually, how representatives in Congress, lawmakers, have become so wealthy while in office. How did they get so rich? And then they get hired once they leave office, often, to make millions more, like speaking engagements, board positions. They still have influence. The rich realize that. Some rich. There you go. Some rich realize that and take advantage of it. Uh, I think Leviticus 19 is, is, is not only calling for you and me to not show partiality when in court, but it also calls for the court itself and the laws that that court is based upon to not show partiality. The laws must be lawful and legislators must legislate according to who God is and what he commands. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you uh, give us uh, your grace in the preaching of your word, that um, the applications were appropriate, I pray, Lord, and that it would make us think about how we vote even on Tuesday, how we train up our children to, to think and to participate in the legal process and the political process both, rein in unbridled people, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Will the uh, deacon